At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. You just heard a clip of the announcement by U.S. President George W. Bush that a major offensive of U.S. forces, along with members of what he called the Coalition of the Willing, were engaging Iraqi forces, starting with the so-called shock and awe series of airstrikes throughout the country, followed by a major invasion on the ground. This conflict officially began on the 19th of March, 20 years ago this week. Although in many ways, as you are about to hear, the effects on the Iraqi people, the Middle East, and on America's role as guardians of international order took a massive dive, less than two years after earning the sympathies of much of the world following the September 11th attacks. Operation Iraqi Freedom cemented perhaps for decades to come the role the United States has and will play as international robber barons, mafia dons brokering their spoils at the expense of everyone else, with dividends going out to its Western partners. The Iraqi people, with hundreds of thousands of deaths and hundreds of thousands more fleeing the country, were the carnage of the U.S. military-industrial complex, apparently not worthy of the consideration of a major, if not the worst, onslaught against a nation since World War II. My name is Michael Welch, and this episode of the Global Research News Hour marks the 20th anniversary of the assault, which marked a turning point for many Americans living the shame of the crusade supposedly for weapons of mass destruction. Over the next hour, we will hear the voices of several individuals reflecting on the crimes of the past two decades toward the Iraqi people, and even to the people carrying out these acts of barbarism. And we will hear about these levels of skullduggery considered to keep the recisionary focused on the task of getting the premise for the war secured. We will evaluate the United Nations and the mainstream corporate media as not only compliant, but as an active participant, an accomplice in the enterprise. And we shall take a look at the legacy the orchestrators set for the U.S. and its NATO partners in the lead-up to the war in Ukraine, which at a time of escalation, China is now trying to negotiate a ceasefire and peace treaty. On this week's broadcast, Iraq 20 years after shock and awe, the wealthy prevail at the expense of world safety and freedom. Global Research News Hour is a radio production paid for by the Center for Research on Globalization and in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this show was produced on the territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, 
the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Part of the trauma and devastation we report on regularly is also found in the people whose land and waters were taken through outright breach of treaties and promises, if not by force. We will continue to strive toward reconciliation and payment of reparations in the years to come. The show will have some descriptions of violence which listeners may find disturbing, and we encourage caution in listening to the material that follows. It should be noted that the war in Iraq didn't really start in 2003. Twelve years previously, it was launched by the U.S. following the invasion of Kuwait. The invasion was, according to some speculation, created in response to the inability of Iraq to pay the debts owed the Kuwait government while financing the previous Iraq-Iran war in the 80s. The U.S. ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, said she took note of the troop buildup in the South, hinting that she knew about plans to invade, but said, quote, We have no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflicts like your broader disagreement with Kuwait, unquote. There was also then a substantial public relations campaign created by the firm Hill & Knowlton to sell the campaign based partly on false information, most notably the testimony by someone who identified as a nurse working in a Kuwait City hospital talking about Iraqi soldiers grabbing babies out of incubators and letting them die on the floor. It turned out a year later that the attacks never happened and that the nurse was actually the daughter of the Kuwait ambassador to the U.S. But the Operation Desert Storm succeeded in freeing Kuwait. The forces against Iraq then imposed sanctions against the country imposed by the United Nations Security Council. The Security Council authorized UNSC Resolution 687, which established ceasefire terms and the beginning of the Iraqi disarmament crisis which saw teams attempt to collect and destroy all weapons of mass destruction they had. The sanctions and the removal of weapons of mass destruction were two of the leading actions in the drama facing the people of Iraq. Dennis Halliday was an assistant secretary general and the UN humanitarian coordinator in Iraq. In 1998, he resigned from his 34 years with the UN after it refused to remove the sanctions that were killing the people of Iraq. He spoke to this issue earlier in the week. Iraq is you know, an extremely wealthy country. Um, despite the Iran-Iraq war, which had taken place, um, the income was something like 30 or $40 billion a year from oil revenue. And Saddam Hussein had invested heavily in education, in, uh, in uh, health care, uh, in housing, and in, in employment opportunities for people, both agriculture and uh, in, uh, in city uh, um, companies and so on. But the country was really in very good shape when the Gulf War broke out. And then, sadly, of course, it, it collapsed very quickly because the, um, the sanctions regime and the damage done during the Gulf War had terrible consequences for the people, particularly the people, children and uh, civilians. Saddam, Saddam, Saddam Hussein himself, of course, and his government were still in power. Of course, I worked with them on behalf of the United Nations uh, when I arrived. 
you said that the UN Security Council had often been brutally employed to serve the narrow interests of the powerful. Was there anything unique or exclusive about the way they carried out their operations in the case of Iraq? Yes, I believe it was unique. I mean, I don't know whether your listeners would know that um, the Security Council was created by Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, and then they added China and France at a later date to make up the five veto powers, which even today, after all those years of the Yalta meeting in 1945, still run the United Nations. And the tragedy is these five countries themselves are the problem because all of them have committed wars of aggression, committed war crimes. Of course, we're watching one as we speak right now in Ukraine. But uh, all the rest of them are equally bad. And sadly, so the, the UN has been controlled by very dangerous and aggressive military uh, countries. And uh, when it came to Iraq, uh, after the, when, the, when Kuwait was invaded by the Iraqi military, um, then the Security Council actually united and the four five veto powers agreed that the, the, the war should commence. And you may recall, led by the Americans, they put together a massive military capacity in Saudi Arabia, half a million men, I believe. And they drove the Iraqi army then, of course, out of Kuwait uh, with terrible consequences for the, for the military um, and, in fact, violating international law by with tanks, with their guns reversed, were being attacked and all the rest of it was a really pretty ugly situation. And the south of Iraq then was was not fully, but partially invaded up towards Basra. And that's when they used depleted uranium weapons, which did, which did so much damage to the military, but even much more damage in later years to the children and the adults and the, and the innocent civilians of Iraq. So when I, as I said before, when I got there, of course, I, I ran straight into the huge loss of life of children uh, in the hospitals uh, throughout um, throughout the South, but also, of course, in, in Baghdad. So the, the Security Council um, implemented this uh, sanctions program. It was an open-ended, comprehensive, uniquely so, and it was actually administered by Washington and London in particular. The other three countries didn't participate, but they were, and they were represented in Baghdad. The three ambassadors were there, and in fact, I, I employed them later to get, the, to get the program increased. But Britain and the United States controlled the quantity and the quality of inputs which we purchased with um, Iraqi money, as I said, about 4.5, um, what did I say, $4.5 billion uh, in when I, the time when I arrived. And um, the, we distributed this, this food and other basic needs um, through 150 outlets throughout Iraq, which had been set up by Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party, uh, which was a socialist endeavor and for many years, including they used, to, they used to hand out Irish beef, as a matter of fact. And as I said before, the Irish, um, Irish hospital organizations ran the hospital health care system in Baghdad, uh, in the country, when I arrived. And the quality of education was extremely high. Uh, huge amounts of money had been invested in infrastructure, highways, and all the rest of it and uh, employment opportunities and workers' housing and agricultural development. And they were exporting agricultural foods and other, other uh, produce um, before the invasion of uh, Kuwait. Uh, so that, that invasion was a, was a dreadful mistake on the part of the government. 
and the consequences were clearly there when I turned up in 1987. Yeah. Now, with the the war taking place in 2003, uh, things went from bad to even worse basically declaring a, 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 an unlawful war. I mean, even Kofi Annan said it was illegal. How, how did you address it? Was it just, uh, you know, just having to stand up to these big uh, bullies, as it were, or, or were they compliant in this, uh, this the, the treatment uh, against well, Iraq? I, yeah, as I hinted before, Despite the, the, the Gulf War and the damage there, there too, of, of the people and the, and the country itself, and it's slipping backwards into a, a destroyed economy, um, the, 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 the friends of the United States in particular, the Saudis and uh, Kuwaitis, of course, and perhaps some of the other countries were nervous about the power of Iraq. It was still a very strong Sunni Sunni power at the time, although of course the Shia community actually was was larger, but it was a Sunni Baptist country with great influence and great power and, and revenue and so on. But the the um, the invasion of 2003 was cooked up uh, by the by by Washington and by London um, when uh, Brown and Blair in London uh, talked about. Um, weapons and all the rest of it, and because they both lied, it was complete fiction. And Lisa Rice and Bush himself, and of course, uh, people like uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney also lied. I mean, they, they got help, of course, from the Pentagon and the CIA. It was all fiction. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Nothing was happening in Iraq of any danger to the neighborhood. And they had, of course, uh, they, um, they had... They had uh, wasted a lot of money in terms of the Iran-Iraq war and the invasion. And, of course, the invasion of Kuwait was, was driven um, not by the UN or not by the Americans or the Russians. It was driven by the fact that uh, the government owed the Saudis and the Kuwaitis something like 30 or $40 billion. And they flooded the market with oil, and the price dropped. And, of course, then the Iraqi government put debts. And that was that really led to the invasion of Kuwait. Of course, people supported the invasion because Kuwait had always been an integral part of um, of Iraq since the Mes- since Mesopotamia, in fact. But in fact, it was stolen by the British um, in the First World War because they wanted the oil revenue and the oil revenue from Iran, as you know, the Anglo Oil Anglo Oil Company in Iran was also a source of income for the British. But in in before two thousand and three. Uh, it was it was Bush and Blair who created this opportunity. They did not get the support of the UN. They didn't, did not get the support of the Russians, the French, or the um, Chinese. And um, the, the 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 bombing, the shock and awe, as you may recall, it was called. Of course, it was a massive war crime. And of course, Bush and Blair are both war criminals. I mean, I've spoken to the uh, to the Parliament in, in Westminster several times, and I always open up my statement by saying, "How is it possible that Mr. Blair, who we all know is a war criminal, is walking the streets of London?" And meantime, the first when I left the UN, I went down to Washington with the agreement of Kofi Annan, and did a congressional briefing and said the same thing down there: that Mr. Blair, Mr. Bush should be behind bars, along with Rice and, of course, uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney and others who. Cheney, of course, made, as you know, millions, billions, possibly, at war uh, of the company he represented at the time. So these, these are crimes of aggression. These were, these were crimes which were 
of a larger scale than the fact what the Russians are doing, unfortunately, in, in the Ukraine. But uh, the and the uh, the um, the United Nations, of course, is powerless. It's the member states that dictate uh, to the Secretary General and people like myself. We we could not obviously stop that war. It was um, out of control, and uh, and the shock and awe and all the rest of it was uh, were just example a violation of international law. Which, as you said, Kofi Annan agreed, of course, ultimately himself, but he was a bit shy to speak up. He wasn't a very strong Secretary General, as you as you well know. By 2002, the year following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, weapons of mass destruction was the leading reason cited by the U.S. and U.K. government for going after Saddam Hussein. Officials led people to believe Saddam Hussein could be giving WMDs to his good buddy Osama bin Laden to be used against the West, or perhaps to use them himself. Following a presentation in front of the UN Security Council that convinced people he was well-equipped in chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, Scott Ritter is a former Marine Corps intelligence officer. He served in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and then in Iraq, overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction. He was one of the leading voices speaking out about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction claim. The important thing is people have to stop putting words in my mouth. I never said that Iraq had fully complied with its obligations to disarm. Far from it. Iraq was not in compliance. I never said that we found everything in Iraq. That is not the case. What I said was that we had accomplished a 95 to 97% level of disarmament. Of that, we were 100% certain. And no one doubts this. Not a single person in the world doubts this. What they doubt is what it means to have 95 to 97% level of disarmament. You see, the Security Council required 100% level of disarmament. As a weapon inspector, I didn't have the latitude to say, well, 95, 97 is good enough, isn't it, boss? The answer was no, 100%. So therefore, it's my job as a weapons inspector to find the missing five or three to 5%. And that's what we were trying to do at the end, to find it. But where is it? You know, uh, the Iraqis claimed that it had been destroyed that they had destroyed it unilaterally, or that we had blown it up during Operation Desert Storm, which, by the way, we destroyed a significant part of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction infrastructure. Um, we required documents. The Iraqis provided some. They hid others. We found those. Um, there were some missing. You know, so at the end of the day, we had a problem. From a quantitative standpoint, Iraq could not be declared free of weapons of mass destruction. And indeed, this is why I resigned. I resigned in 1998 from my job as a weapons inspector because I was not being allowed to do that which was necessary to fulfill the mandate of finding the final vestiges of this program or determining that there was nothing left to find. The United States was stopping this. And you have to ask yourself, why would the United States do this? Because a finding of compliance did not conform with the American objective of regime change in Iraq. United States had since May of 1991, when the weapons inspections first began, said quite clearly it didn't matter if Iraq cooperated with the United Nations weapons inspectors. It didn't matter if Iraq was found to be in compliance. 
economic sanctions would be maintained until it's time Saddam Hussein was removed from power. Now, there is no legal mandate for this. This is unilateral policy on the part of the United States. Now, this put us in a difficult position as weapons inspectors from the very beginning, because the Iraqi government rightly said, why should we cooperate with you? What do we get out of it? We give up these weapons, which we believe we need to survive in this neighborhood. And then the sanctions that are linked to our surrender of these weapons won't be lifted until Saddam Hussein is removed. So frankly speaking, all you're asking us to do is let you come in and weaken Iraq further. Why should we allow you to do that? As weapons inspectors, what we said is because that's the law. You know, what the United States says as an independent member of the Security Council is different than what the Security Council says as a collective. And the Security Council, operating under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter, has determined that Iraq must give up all of its weapons of mass destruction capacity. And only at that time would the Security Council consider the lifting of sanctions. So rather than prejudge the outcome, why don't we disarm you? And then collectively, we and the rest of the Security Council can confront the United States over the inadequacies of its policy. The Iraqis didn't accept this initially. They hid a lot of weapons from us. And we spent many years uh, going through many confrontational inspections to break through the walls of deceit, to find the hidden weapons, to dispose of the hidden weapons, to find the archives that they were hiding related to production methodologies, and to capture those archives, bring them under our control. And finally, we were able to say, as I said, by 1996, we could say that we had eliminated the totality, and listen to what I'm saying here, the totality of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction production capacity. There were no more facilities in Iraq capable of producing weapons of mass destruction. No facilities that could produce long-range ballistic missiles. No facilities that could produce chemical weapons. No facilities that could produce biological weapons. No facilities that could produce nuclear weapons. They were all eliminated. Now, there were numerous dual-use facilities. These are facilities that had certain manufacturing capabilities, which, if modified, could be used to produce prohibited uh, things. But we were monitoring every single one of these factories with full-time, 24-hour-a-day um, inspections, either using cameras, on-site inspection, a mixer of both. Um, and we could safely say that so long as we were monitoring these facilities, they were not involved in the manufacturing of weapons of mass destruction. We could also say that the vast majority of the unaccounted for material, the stuff that we couldn't get our hands on that last three to 5%, simply didn't matter. For instance, in the field of chemical weapons, if Iraq had retained their most prominent chemical weapon, the sarin and uh, taboon nerve agent, if they were hiding these in chemical shells, artillery rockets, then after three to five years, they become useless. It's gunk. It's not a chemical weapon anymore. It's sludge. Now, we know that Iraq wasn't producing new chemical weapons. How did we know that? Because we were monitoring the totality of Iraq's industrial infrastructure. So we could safely say that even if Iraq hid some of the weapons, and the last time they produced these weapons was in early 1991, that five years later, in 1996, those weapons are no longer weapons. They're nothing. The same holds true for liquid bulk, bulk anthrax. After three years, it germinates, it becomes sludge. So even if Iraq hid 
liquid bulk anthrax from the weapons inspectors. After three years, it doesn't matter because it's no longer a weapon. And suddenly when you look at it from that standpoint, from a qualitative standpoint, Iraq was disarmed. Unfortunately, the Security Council didn't allow for a qualitative judgment, only a quantitative judgment. That's why when I resigned from the Special Commission, I testified for the United States Senate. I said Iraq was not disarmed. And that unless the United States allowed weapons inspections to go into Iraq unfettered from American interference, Iraq could, if no inspectors were there, and if a political decision was made, reconstitute significant aspects of its weapons of mass destruction production capability within six months. That is to convert those dual use facilities, which we were monitoring, into facilities dedicated for the production of chemical weapons, biological weapons, long-range ballistic missiles. There was no way they were going to reconstitute their nuclear programs. Um, but then the United States bombed Iraq in uh, December of 1998, Operation Desert Fox. They did so after kicking the weapons inspectors out of Iraq. And I will say that again, because people tend to have no memory. Iraq did not kick weapons inspectors out. The United States ordered weapons inspectors out and then bombed Iraq using the intelligence information gathered by the inspectors about sensitive facilities, but instead used it to target Saddam Hussein for assassination. After that point, the Iraqis said they could no longer trust the weapons inspectors and they would not allow them back in. And that's the situation that existed up until 2002. Now, I had been making the case ever since we bombed Iraq using UN, uh, UN uh, information that the return of weapons inspectors was politically difficult to imagine how that could happen because the United Nations had in effect lost the trust and confidence of the Iraqi government. How could the Iraqi government ever again trust the United Nations and trust the United Nations weapons inspectors because they had shown themselves to be little more than a tool of the United States for regime change, for the assassination of the president. And I also articulated that it's time that the world re-examine the Iraqi disarmament obligation from a qualitative standpoint, does Iraq pose a threat to the United States or the international community worthy of war? Or could Iraq be considered disarmed fundamentally? And as long as we had monitoring inspections in place, we wouldn't have to worry about them rearming. And so that's the argument I was putting for on the eve of the war, that Iraq was fundamentally disarmed, but we needed to get weapons inspectors back in. I never walked away from that requirement, that we cannot just unilaterally declare Iraq to be disarmed in any fashion, whether quantitative or qualitative. We needed weapons inspectors back in. This is why I traveled to Iraq in September of 2002 and addressed the Iraqi parliament, an unprecedented move. No foreigner had ever before addressed the Iraqi parliament. I did so, and the purpose was to tell them they had to let UN weapons inspectors back in without any a constraint. The inspectors had to be allowed to do their job. This was a difficult message for the parliament to hear, but when they heard why I was saying it, which was, if you don't, you will all die. The United States will invade you, will destroy you, will kill you. They paid attention. They sent the signal up to their leadership. I then met their leadership. And guess what? They allowed weapons inspectors back in. It was a great success. But then the United States proved that it had no intention of allowing the inspectors to do their job. They indicated that they didn't trust the findings of the inspectors, that the Iraqis were hiding weapons from the inspectors. Um, and it got to the point where even though the inspectors had, you know, when they first went in, the United States provided them with a list. I forget the total number of targets on the list, uh, 18 or so. 
uh, that the United States said this represents the best intelligence we have. These are the targets where Iraq is known to be hiding weapons of mass destruction. The inspectors went to each one of these sites and found not only that were there no weapons of mass destruction there, but the sites were not capable of producing weapons of mass destruction or even storing weapons of mass destruction, that the intelligence was garbage. But that didn't stop Colm Powell from appearing before the Security Council on February in February of uh, 2003 to make his false claim that Iraq was not only in possession of weapons of mass destruction, but was reconstituting its ability to manufacture them. He just made things up out of thin air. There was no factual basis to anything he said in that presentation. Uh, I know because, again, I did the job for seven years. I was at every location that Colin Powell briefed. I know every weapon system he briefed. Much of the work he briefed was based upon the work that I did in Iraq. I wasn't guessing when I made my conclusions about the fact that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction capability that posed a threat to the United States or constituted a justification for war. So once again, I state straight up, I wasn't guessing. I knew. And guess what? History proved me right. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Marjorie Cohn is a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, a former president of the National Lawyers Guild and deputy secretary general of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. Her books include Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law, and Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. She's been outspoken against the war in Iraq and wrote an article reviewing the 20 years George Bush had gotten off scot-free for prosecuting the war without repercussions. Here she explains the situation to us in a recent interview. Like the escalation of the violence in Vietnam by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 by the U.S. and the U.K. and the so-called coalition was based on a lie. It had nothing to do with any national interest of the United States, and yet continually leading up to the March 2003 invasion of Iraq bombing and invasion, the Bush administration, particularly George W. Bush, uh, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Condoleezza Rice, falsely warned that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Um, Condoleezza Rice invoked the image of a mushroom cloud to justify the impending invasion of Iraq. And Secretary of State Colin Powell shamefully presented false information about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction to the UN Security Council in February 2003, when the Bush administration was trying to get the council to approve its invasion. The council did not do that. And so Bush cobbled together prior resolutions of the Security Council, none of which individually or collectively justified the invasion of Iraq and said, oh, now it's legal. Um, I should back up and say that the United Nations Charter forbids one country from using military force against another country unless it's acting in self-defense 
or with the approval of the Security Council, and neither of those things was present before the U.S. invaded Iraq. Also, the Bush administration was touting a mythical connection between al-Qaeda, who had was responsible for the 9-11 attacks, and Saddam Hussein, even though there was no connection at all. Um, and no weapons of mass destruction were ever found by the UN weapons inspectors, either before or after Bush's invasion of Iraq, and no connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda was ever proved with evidence. And by the way, the Bush administration knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction to speak of because the year before, in 2002, former UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter confirmed that Iraq had destroyed 90 to 95% of its weapons of mass destruction. And he said there was no evidence that it had retained the other five to 10%, which even if it had retained, didn't necessarily constitute a threat or even a weapons program. So it was based on a lie. And also, um, in the, my book, Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law, that you mentioned, um, in the first chapter on aggression, because this was an act of aggression by Iraq, um, George, there, there is evidence uh, from sources within the Bush administration that they were planning to invade Iraq and change the regime, in other words, get rid of Saddam Hussein, long before the 9-11 attacks. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the crimes uh, here, it, it's not just that they went to war on a, uh, a phony pretext and, uh, and, and waged, a, I guess, a criminal war of aggression against a, an innocent country, is it? Well, it it's, it's not a just because the crime of aggression is the supreme international crime, um, according to the Nuremberg Tribunal, because uh, the Nuremberg Tribunal said that the, the crime of aggression includes within it all other war crimes. But there were additional war crimes, many war crimes committed by the leaders of the Bush administration, um, including extrajudicial killings, torture, targeting of civilians, um, and the torture and abuse at Abu Ghraib prison, um, which came to light with horrible photographs. Um, civilians were targeted because U.S. troops were operating under rules of engagement that basically directed them to shoot everything that moved. They used those same uh, free fire zones uh, in Vietnam. And the U.S. bombed civilian areas. They used cluster bombs, depleted uranium, white phosphorus. Um, there, for example, uh, probably the most notorious free fire zone was in Fallujah in April of 2004, where U.S. forces killed 736 people, at least 60 percent of whom were women and children. In November of 2004, also in Fallujah, U.S. troops killed between 581 and 670 civilians. And then another example of uh, extrajudicial killing was the Haditha massacre in November of 2005, when U.S. Marines killed 24 unarmed civilians execution style in a three to four hour rampage. And that was covered up. Um, until Time Magazine ran the story several months later. Very similar to the My Lai massacre in Vietnam that was covered up for a year. And by the way, Colin Powell helped to cover that up 
until the investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch broke the story. And there have also been documented extrajudicial killings in the Iraqi cities of Al-Qaim, Talajar, Mukaradib, Mumidia, Al-Hamadia, Samara, Salhuddin, and Ishaki. We see the speed with which the Russian president is being accused of high crimes by the IC, the International Criminal Court. Uh, no such accusations have been made against Bush and Cheney. I mean, was the Russian invasion of Ukraine that much worse than American crimes against Iraq? No, it was not. Um, and I'm not saying that crimes have not been committed. It was also an illegal uh, war of aggression, active aggression, when Putin invaded Ukraine. Um, but it only took one year for the International Criminal Court to actually charge Putin with war crimes, um, whereas it's been 20 years since the invasion of Iraq and no U.S. leader has been brought to justice, either internationally or in the United States. We have the war crime statute and the torture statute, um, and neither of those have ever been charged against any of the members of the Bush administration. They basically are getting off scot-free for very, very serious war crimes that led to the killing and maiming and uh, creation of refugees of untold numbers of people in Iraq. You lied about weapons of mass destruction. You lied about connections to 9-11. You lied about Iraq being a threat. You sent me to Iraq. You sent me to Iraq in 2003. My friends are dead. That was Mike Preisner, an Iraq war vet turned journalist, speaking out against George W. Bush at a speech in September of 2021. He was hauled off by organizers. Joshua Key is another veteran who fought in Iraq in the early years. He was sufficiently disturbed by everything he experienced and had a hand in dispatching to the people of Iraq. The following is an excerpt from a speech he gave to a Winnipeg audience in 2015. I was on uh, guarding a children's hospital. It was the Ramadi Children's Hospital. It was on the banks of the Euphrates River. It was a beautiful hospital. We were on all four corners of the, the bottom and all four corners of the top. Adjacent to one of the, the corners, there was a little shack, and a little bitty girl would come running across every time I was on guard duty and would say, Mr. Food and Mr. Water. So <clears throat> I would always give her my MREs and I would always give her my water. Most of us would, for, for the most part. Sometimes they would come across our radio to quit fraternizing with the enemy, and we would, I would laugh it off. My God, this is a little kid who needs food and water. One day she comes running across the street just like normal. This is after weeks. She comes running. And then right when she hit the middle of the road, her head exploded like a mushroom, and she fell to the ground. When, when it happened, I went to shock. Um, we, uh, her parents come running out and grab the girl. It was, uh, yeah. We get the call late at night. We're on the banks of the Euphrates River. We're an armored personnel carrier. We took a sharp right-hand turn. When we took that sharp right-hand turn, there was two Iraqis that were decapitated from gunfire on the ground. Whenever we parked, my sergeant said, get out and pull perimeter. I got out the back, pull perimeter. There was other American soldiers on the ground at this location. When I got out the back, they were playing soccer with the heads. And I just turned right back around, got inside of my own personnel carrier and said, nope, I'm not going to have any involvement with this. 
My sergeant screamed at me, you're breaking a direct command. I said, yep, damn sure am, and I sat down. Whenever we got back to our palace again, I said, I want to file a mission statement. I want to put what I've seen there and have it documented. And again, I was told it was none of my concern, none of my business, and get the hell out of his tent. That's when the wheels in my mind were turning like crazy, because everything you people have told me has been a lie. The only terrorist at that time that I was coming to the point of was us. We were the terrorists, we were the occupiers, and we were the ones doing everything there. There was no one doing anything back to us. The war supposedly ended in 2011 when U.S. troops were withdrawn. But did that end the war, or has the war continued? The war never ended. Um, Saddam Hussein, in the closing days of the, uh, of the conventional phase of this war, had a decision to make. Could he defend Baghdad block by block, street by street, house by house, um, you know, incurring and inflicting horrific casualties on the United States, but destroying Baghdad in the process? Or could he order his forces to disappear, to, to melt back into society um, and then be prepared to carry out long term resistance? And he chose to have his forces disappear, melt back into society. And he told his intelligence service, we have the memorandum, uh, that they should maintain their contacts and their affiliations with the uh, Shia of, um, of Iraq and um, go there, function as them. But when the time comes, be prepared to do what is necessary to resist the American occupation. He also told that to the Sunni people, go back to the tribes, go back and, you know, cooperate, for instance, with the more radical Sunni religious elements, buy into them, become one of them. Uh, so when the time comes, you know, you will be able to rise up and resist. Um, there was an organization called Al-Qaeda Iraq, AQI. Um, Zuwahiri formed it. A lot of the people that were supporting Zuwahiri were Iraqi intelligence officers. In fact, there is some speculation that Zuwahiri could not have succeeded if it weren't for the Iraqi intelligence services who gave him safe houses, gave him um, sanctuary, helped him arm, equip, etc. This man was just a petty criminal from Jordan, and suddenly he's heading this massive resistance movement. And um, myself and others believe that this resistance movement was Saddam Hussein's intelligence services using Zuwahiri as a front. And AQI turned into ISIS. The uh, elements from uh, Al-Qaeda Iraq traveled to Syria and um, and created what became the Islamic State. Um, and when the Islamic State expanded in 2014, 2015, sweeping out of the Syrian deserts across into Iraq, over to Mosul, then down towards Tikrit, people were shocked by the speed in which they did it. But they were also shocked by the fact that ISIS started looking more like a conventional military, that many of the forces, especially once they got into the Mosul area and down into Tikrit, um, these were Iraqi military veterans, people who were veterans of Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist party. These were, you know, fighters uh, for Saddam who were now, you know, operating under the ISIS flag. And I think that's proof positive that ISIS is an extension of the Saddam vision of long-term resistance. So today, when we're in Iraq, fighting ISIS, we're fighting the remnants of Saddam's regime. He may be dead, the Ba'ath Party may continue to be underground, but ISIS is an extension 
of the resistance that Saddam started uh, when he made the decision for his forces to evaporate into the night. So the war has never ended. It continues. And in many cases, you could say that it has expanded because ISIS now operates not only in Iraq and in Syria, but around the world. And it wouldn't unless there was this expanded movement that was given life by Saddam Hussein in his decision to resist American occupation of Iraq. Um, the United States invasion, the U US-UK invasion, destabilized that country such that ISIS did move in, as you said. ISIS was not operating uh, in Iraq before so-called Operation Iraqi Freedom in, in 2003 and the subsequent eight-year war. Um, part of the um, evidence to show that the Bush administration was planning long before 9-11 to attack Iraq and change its regime um, were uh, maps of oil fields and statements that were made by officials in the government about Iraq's oil. Um, certainly that had a lot to do with why Iraq was invaded. And I think that if Saddam Hussein had been ready to play ball, willing to play ball with uh, U.S. corporate interests, petroleum interests, he'd probably still be there. It had really nothing to do with him. Um, yes, he was a tyrant. Um, he did some horrible things. But um, there, in many ways, Iraqis were better off in terms of literacy, in terms of their economy, in terms of the role of women under Saddam Hussein than subsequent to his basic, basically assassination um, and regime change in Iraq uh, as, as a result of the U.S.-U.K. Uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq. What we underrepresent, underestimate, is the damage to both the U.S. and Britain in terms of that war in 2003 and the consequences for the whole Middle East, Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, and, of course, Iraq itself, and maybe the neighborhood of Saudis and others. I mean, uh, as you know, the, the, the British and the Americans, I mean, Bremer, who was the ambassador there in two, as of 2003, he made some huge mistakes. He violated international law by, by interfering in the constitution of Iraq. He abolished the Ba'ath Party and therefore made uh, several million people unemployed. He, he, he cancelled or he, he terminated the military capacity of Iraq, doing, again, uh, leaving millions, uh, maybe up one and a half million people without families, uh, without revenue, without, uh, without income. And of course, as you know, out of the out of what Bremer did, grew ISIS. Uh, the ISIS, as you know, was a was a Sunni uh, endeavor, which at one stage took over half of Iraq. That came directly out of out of the American decision vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, uh, destroying the military capacity of Iraq. And the ISIS was funded by the Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia, which of course is a Sunni state, as you also know as well as I do. So it was a catastrophe on on just about every. Every front. Western media, far from reporting the news, served a role of propelling it. I asked guests to comment on that role. Well, I think the initially the, the media were the people like Fox and others were part of the problem. CNN gobbled up all the lies and misinformation that came out of the State Department and the CIA and other people and, and out of London. I mean, they tried to believe, they wanted to believe that, that there were weapons of mass destruction. They wanted to see Saddam brought down. It was all part of the game, I think, that there was a, this is the right war, this is the right thing to do, 
this man's a monster, or all the rest of it. Do you remember the language was used at the time? The statue was pulled down, of course, not by the Iraqis, but by the U.S. military. Iraq, after all, was a member state of the United Nations, <laughs> and uh, other member states turned upon it and destroyed it. And uh, the media joined in happily and did very well. And later, of course, when the truth came out, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And when it turned out that Blair and Bush had lied together with the State Department and the State, uh, the Secretary of State had gone to the Security Council in New York and lied about finding the residue of nuclear... It was an extraordinary scandal. But it happened, and uh, Iraq, Iraq paid the price, together with the region, I would say, the damage there. I mean, only now we're beginning to see the Saudis and the Iranians talking to each other again. And maybe Syria may even arise and become part of the community, or at least what's left of it. So the consequences are extraordinarily painful. You know, if there were ever war crime trials held for the crime of, you know, initiating a war of aggression, which, according to uh, Justice Jackson of the Nuremberg Tribunal and the U.S. Supreme Court, is the greatest war crime of all, war of aggression. And what the United States did in Iraq was an illegal war of aggression. So if there was ever a tribunal and people were to be brought to justice, in addition to George W. Bush, in addition to Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and we could just go down the line, pretty much the totality of the Bush administration's national security and defense um, uh, you know, staffing, um, there, there, there is an element, and it was they were successfully prosecuted at Nuremberg, the propagandists. And the mainstream U.S. media has served as de facto propagandists for the Bush administration in uh, bringing about this war. I know, because in, in September uh, of, 19, of 2002, I was brought into CNN headquarters where uh, they were trying to recruit me as one of their talking heads. And I was shown their war room. This is in September of 2002, mind you. The decision to go to war wasn't officially made until March of 2003. But in September 2002, CNN was already coordinating with the Pentagon about embedded reporters, about graphics that they would use to uh, support this war. They were already you know, getting their contacts throughout the Pentagon to help them report on the war in Iraq. And um, that shows a hand-in-glove relationship that uh, goes beyond the, any notion of good reporting and uh, instead shows that CNN was serving as a de facto extension of the Pentagon propaganda machine. So if the Pentagon is guilty of waging a war of aggression in Iraq, CNN and the other mainstream media outlets are guilty of serving as the propaganda arm of this illegal war of aggression. So, you know, I have um, no sympathy whatsoever for mainstream media. They were complicit in this. They knew what the truth was. Why do you say that, Scott? Because I told them the truth. I appeared before all of them. I spoke to each one of them. I spoke to Tom Brokaw. I spoke to Peter Jennings. I spoke to Dan Rather. I spoke to Wolf Blitzer. I spoke to every single one of these talking heads and their production staff. They knew the truth, but they chose instead to report the propaganda. 
It's interesting that last May, George W. Bush accidentally admitted that his decision to invade Iraq was unjustified. He was uh, giving a speech to a crowd at the Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, and Bush decried, quote, the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, Ukraine, unquote. And then he added under his breath, Iraq, too. Uh, and then Biden recently, speaking about the war in Ukraine, uh, declared how absurd it was, quote, this is Biden, the idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country since World War II. Nothing like that has happened, unquote. Well, Biden apparently forgot about so-called Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, where uh, 173,000 troops from the U.S. and the U.K. invaded Iraq. A slip of the tongue on the part of Bush and Biden. When I was a weapons inspector in Iraq from 1991 to 1998, I could walk anywhere I wanted in Baghdad at any time and not fear either crime or um, a car bomb or an act of terrorism. I could travel north and south, east and west. I could stop in Fallujah and, uh, and go get a shawarma or go get a chicken, uh, a, you know, a, a, a grilled chicken, um, and not fear being shot, gunned down, blown up. I could go to Mosul and have the same thing happen. I could do the same in Tikrit. I could do the same in Najaf. You can't do that today. Iraq is a fundamentally broken nation. It's a nation where um, the sectarian differences have... Um, you know, been sharpened into weapons that are used against one another, where Shia and Sunni do not get along, Christians don't get along with anybody, the Kurds and the Arabs don't get along. Uh, it's a nation of war. It's a broken nation. This is the direct consequence. This is the legacy of the American invasion. But it's not just Iraq. Our invasion uh, tore, tore asunder the entire you know, notion of stability in the Middle East. Because of the American invasion in Iraq, we created the conditions for the Arab Spring. And anybody who thinks that the Arab Spring brought about a democracy hasn't taken a look at what's happened to the, every nation that went that got involved in the Arab Spring. All it's brought is death, destruction, suffering. We destabilized the entire Middle East. And um, it's a question of whether or not uh, the Middle East will ever be able to regain um, you know, a modicum of stability. We see some indication of that with the Chinese diplomatic initiative to bring Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, back into better relations. But, you know, they shouldn't have had to have done that to begin with, but they, they had to. The fact that they had to is because of the fallout from uh, the American illegal invasion of Iraq, the war of aggression that we waged. The other thing is, if Americans think back to 9-11, the post 9-11 period, there was such a outreach of warmth on the part of the world to the United States. People rallied behind the United States. They were on the side of the United States. And that was the time for the United States to really act as a world leader, to behave in a balanced manner, a manner respective, respectful of you know, the, the desire of the world to bring to account those who perpetrated this horrible attack against the United States but not to give the United States carte blanche to go to war against the world. But we opted to go to war against the world. It was a global war on terror. We waged it with no regard to any of our allies, anybody but ourselves. And in doing so, 
we not only set ourselves down the path for the embarrassment that turned out to be Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and Somali and everywhere else we've uh, flown our drones or put our troops, but we've also allowed the reputation of the United States to be shredded at the United Nations um, and around the world. We're no longer seen as the good guy. Anybody who thinks that America is the good guy hasn't gotten around the world and traveled and listened to what the world thinks about us. We're the bad guys. We're the bullies. We're the people that bring the bombs, not the bread. Um, you know, and this this is a this is a sad state of affairs. And not only that, though, we're not even big bullies anymore. We've been weakened greatly. Um, our the you know the the American ability to project diplomatic, economic, and military power has been greatly diminished. You know, we are part of the G7 group of seven, uh, you know, form of advanced economies. Well, they have now been surpassed by BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. That that economic form has just surpassed us in terms of percentage of the global economy under their sway. And it's only going to get better for them is Saudi Arabia, Iran, Argentina, Egypt, Turkey, and other nations join BRICS. Nobody's joining G7. It's full of nations whose economies are stagnant. Economies are in retrograde. Take a look at the British economy. Economies that are suffering under high um, energy prices brought on by irresponsible sanctioning of Russia. So, you know, the United States is weaker today than we were when 9-11 happened, when we invaded Iraq. And that's the legacy of Iraq, the direct legacy. We, We have weakened ourselves, maybe fatally so. Um, I don't think the United States will ever be able to recover from the damage it has done to itself because of the decision to invade Iraq back in 2003. Today's broadcast was a special episode of the Global Research News Hour devoted to commemorating the tragic history of the last 20 years of the Iraq War. Many thanks to our contributors, Dennis Halliday, Scott Ritter, Mike Preisner, Joshua Key, and Marjorie Cohn. We would also wish to say our thoughts are with the people of Iraq. The colossal destruction and loss of life there is virtually impossible to fully fathom. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearch.ca newshour at gmail.com audio clips were from c-span and the empire files music was for the song shifting sands from purple planet music available at the website purple-planet.com i've been your host michael welch thanks once again for joining us